Hello everybody, welcome to episode 42 of Life and Life Only, and this is episode 3 of 4 of a series I'm calling Happiness, Darren Brown, Life and Death. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes in the series, obviously it would be advantageous to do that, but as I've said before, perhaps you've just stumbled upon this podcast, it's gone into your feed and you're not in a position to download the first two episodes and you just want to listen to this one. It does work by itself, though I will be referring back to the previous two episodes at certain times. I hope you enjoyed the interlude of the last two episodes, the one about tennis and then the two-parter put into one part of my appearance with Luke Thompson, talking about various topics. But now we're back to uh, the Darren Brown book, Happy, Why More or Less Everything is Absolutely Fine. Just before I crack on with that, I am a life coach if you're interested in life coaching or know anyone else who is please write to me life and life only pod at gmail.com if you'd like to support the show financially or otherwise there are links in the show notes if you're not aware of my work i've got three podcasts it's all on my website antonyretuno.com and links for paypal and buy me a coffee are also in the show notes otherwise if you could just tell people about the show share links it all helps so when we last left Darren Brown's book. We were uh, less than halfway through it, so I've had to cherry pick even more as I've been planning parts three and four of this series. It's been fun. It's been a bit of a chore to try and uh, do this delicate balancing act of addressing each section of the book without being able to address each subsection of the book because there's lots of those and trying not to give everything in the book away because I don't want this just to be a shortcut to actually reading the book. I'm not working for Darren, by the way, (laughs) not promoting it directly for him. If I do repeat myself, I apologise for that in advance because uh, I haven't listened back to the first two parts apart from when I edited them and they were a few months ago in this bizarre time warp that has been 2023 where I've been occasionally recording episodes long before I put them out. Something Luke and I talked about last time out and probably not something I need to keep harping on. Let me just get on with doing this. So we left it talking about fate and the idea that fate doesn't really care what happens in your life, fate and destiny. And Darren didn't really mean that as a negative thing. I think it's encouraging you really to get on with controlling your own life, taking the reins, so to speak, with your own life. We're going to carry on here with uh, a section about the Stoics and fate. Obviously, we've talked quite a bit about the Stoics in the other episodes and there's a lot more of that as well so he's talking about the externals being indifferent he says for example if you are ill or a loved one dies this is ultimately a matter of no importance to fate and the machinations of the universe the fiery logos could have arranged things whereby you would be in great health and the loved one would still be alive and well but that would be of no more importance than the current less pleasant situation A bit of tough love, I think, as we said last time, but I think it is necessary to understand that. This approach to fate is both brilliant and vulnerable to criticism. It yielded some of their most creative thinking, this is referring to the Stoics, as they responded to detractors who could not agree with their claim that everything that happens is destined to be that way. The Stoics were early espousers of determinism, namely that all events, including our own actions, are ultimately determined by causes external to the will. This is generally seen as the opposite to holding a belief in free will, and the resulting debate has raged for two millennia and achieved vertiginous levels of complexity. 
Critics attack the Stoics' idea that if everything happens by fate, then all events are due to antecedent causes. If that were true, it would make no sense to praise or blame anyone for their actions, as they would not themselves be responsible for their behaviour or the impulses that led to it. In fact, how can it make any sense for us to be in control of our thoughts and actions if the Stoics are right and our mental and physical lives are predetermined every step of the way? What does it mean for something to be our decision, for something to be up to us, if our apparent free decision is the inevitable conclusion of a series of prior events rolling up to this moment of history? Certainly it could make no sense to blame or praise someone for their actions or intentions. And I'll just pause for a second to say that I think I have addressed this in terms of crime. We've had a case recently in England of Lucy Letby. I'll just leave you with that name. I'm not going to go into the details of her crimes. We've also, as I'm recording this in September, we've just had the explosion of this story about Russell Brand. And you're probably listening to this, I think, in November, if my podcast release schedule works. So I'm sure there will have been already lots of other twists and turns in that tale. But the idea is that, and I'm not comparing Lucy Letby and Russell Brand, because as of now, Russell Brand has not been found to be guilty of anything except some rather, I don't know, inappropriate behaviour on camera. But uh, if we take Lucy Letby, who has been found guilty of doing some horrendous things to babies that were in her care, I'm sure there are reasons for all these things. And you can look at serial killers as well. We, we've said before, if someone grows up perhaps with something literally wrong with their brain, this came up in the emotional intelligence episodes I did a long time ago, and they grew up in an environment where things were allowed and their role models displayed horrendous behaviour themselves, you could have sympathy with the fact that that person perhaps had no chance in life and uh, are a result of just a terrible example and perhaps some defect in their brain. But you still need to have a justice system. Someone still needs to be accountable. So this idea that everything is predestined, you know, it is a thorny issue because then what do you do about praise or blame for anyone's actions whether you're looking at your own life or you're talking about illegal actions of various kinds one of the stoic academics uh, responded to this criticism by describing a cylinder rolling down a slope the initial push needed to start rolling it is an auxiliary cause of its movement and corresponds to the presentation made to our minds of some external event in the real world this auxiliary cause might be the approach of an attractive lady to a married man at a party this is the equivalent of the cylinder receiving a push. But what happens next? The direction the cylinder takes is not just determined by the external nudge. It also is a direct result of its own shape. This inequality of the cylinder is responsible for its continued motion and corresponds to the way we choose to assent to or refuse to assent to the possibilities presented to us in the world. Our man may choose to resist the temptation of an extramarital affair or not and this expression of his inner moral constitution is as responsible as the presence of the woman for the direction it takes, and therefore allows us to blame him or praise him as we see fit. And Darren does say at the end of the next paragraph, it's a bit messy. And the whole idea with blaming, as I said, is pretty messy. I guess the thing really to take from that is to have in your mind that you are vulnerable to influences. And I think if you are aware of that, then you can take more responsibility for the resulting actions. As with so many things in this book, and I'm not copping out here, you know, these are very, very difficult 
issues and they probably don't have a perfect resolution or I know in many cases they don't have a perfect resolution but the main thing here is to give useful information and then uh, it's up to the individual to act on that. Now we get to a section where we're talking uh, about Marcus Aurelius and his book Meditations which has come up previously. Marcus is reminding us in his meditations and Nietzsche, that's Friedrich Nietzsche we've mentioned before as well, is telling us the concept of eternal recurrence to aim for the uncompromising acceptance of life as it is, to align ourselves with fortune, to cease trying to control it. This is the love of fate, known as amor fati in Latin. Neither philosopher would discourage improving our lot. Become who you are was Nietzsche's rallying cry, or trying to ensure social change where it mattered, but these efforts notwithstanding, a key to living more happily is to simply decide that you are very happy with reality per se. We might as well be, because if we try to change things we cannot control, we're going to become angry and frustrated. Understanding we are only in control of our thoughts and actions, we can choose how to respond to events whenever they prove less than ideal, without making ourselves unhappy. It's fine that people are rude or ignorant. It's fine. If we were in their shoes with their history and their current pressures... We would act the same way. We certainly shouldn't let them make us act rudely or ignorantly out of frustration. The Greeks understood this relationship between man and the machinations of the universe. Their tragedies taught us that we'd need to learn raw humility in the fickle face of fate. Tragic heroes marched out into the world full of pride, biased vision and a mighty capacity for self-deception. Fate ultimately brought them to their knees. The lesson for us is not that we are doomed, but that we must reassess the control we think we wield. Each of us is born into a world where we know no better than to internalise every message we receive as being one about us. We learn patterns of behaviour to secure attention and defend against feelings of abandonment or being overwhelmed. We move into life with these rigid patterns in place, while life swirls all around us like a whirlwind of loose, constantly fluctuating possibilities. We desperately try to reduce it to something manageable, something that confirms the broken messages about ourselves we may have learned in childhood and have institutionalised into our behaviour. I want to reiterate a point where he says, it's fine. Of course, I don't know of the people listening to this what your circumstances are. Perhaps your life is not fine. And I have sympathy with that. I have to generalise, as Darren Brown is generalising. So I suppose, again, take the information and work it around the current circumstances of your life as best you can the next chapter is a continuation of trying to apply these stoic principles to your own life and there's a section here called start talking to yourself the first most fundamental decision we should make is to engage more often in a silent dialogue with ourselves we need to be able to step back and recognize when we are making choices as to how to behave or think or acknowledge when an unhelpful choice has been made and supply counter-arguments to remedy the situation. If we are feeling angry, upset or hurt, it's understandable, but we have forgotten ourselves. It may be unavoidable that we will feel some of these negative emotions, perhaps every day, but there's all the difference in the world between allowing them to take root, which comes from believing they are caused by external events and leads to us holding others accountable for our feelings, and accepting responsibility for them, and seeing if we might correct them internally. We know already the two big questions we might ask ourselves when we are feeling mad, bad or sad. 1. I am responsible for how I feel about external events. What am I doing to give myself this feeling? Number 2. Is this thing that's upsetting me something which lies under my control? If not, 
What if I were to decide it's fine and let it go? I think we came across that last time, in fact. We should ask these questions and pay attention to the honest answers. At first we might feel a fight. We might still want to blame other things and other people for our problems. Until we have practiced this, we may feel like there are things we don't wish to forget about and decide are fine. But consider even the worst cases of, say, the effects of childhood abuse. If a survivor spent years in highly effective therapy and found him or herself finally getting rid of the debilitating legacy of such trauma, the key thought that will have allowed the healing to occur will be something along the lines of, it's fine now to let it go. At some level, this thought will release us. The only difference is how easy or difficult it is to let such a powerful thought take root. If the seed needs planting deeply in in those unconscious strata of which we are unaware, the chances are we will need help from a professional to find the right spot. Meanwhile, once we have opened ourselves to the flood of relief that comes from relinquishing our annoyance at some external thing or person, it becomes a lot easier to secure the next time. And from that paragraph, what I noted as I was reading it was that perhaps it's much better to say it's fine now to let it go rather than saying it's fine. Because just saying it's fine sounds a little bit facile, perhaps. So uh, I'm glad that he expanded on that a little bit in that paragraph. Next part I'm going to read is called Don't Add to First Impressions. Here we are every day navigating the world and the people in it from that unique point of view that we mistake for clear-sightedness. A neurotic or anxious person prides himself on being perceptive when it comes to people as if the legacy of a perennially unsettling childhood would be powers of observation as cool and perspicacious perspicacious as Sherlock Holmes himself. I'm going to say two things. First of all, uh, I, can't, I probably said this last time, if I have a criticism, it seems like he swallowed a dictionary before he wrote this book, and he's putting in these long words. I don't know what perspicacious means, and I'm an English teacher. If you do, congratulations. <laughs> the other thing is that when he chooses genders... I think I said him or herself. Dara actually wrote prides herself. I'm not going to keep um, exchanging that for him or her or they or them. I'm just going to read it as he's written it. But just make note that he chooses um, genders at certain times and at times where it would apply to both genders. We all operate from the vantage point of our own deep fears and we stand guard against any threat to them. This wariness we mistake for insight. We thus decide from a place of insecurity what truth is and find evidence for it everywhere. Thus lover A asks lover B if she is ever attracted to strangers. B pauses before assuring her nervous lover that she is not. A, searching for evidence to secure his fear that partners are fickle, a fear that compelled him to ask such a daft question, interprets the pause with neurotic discontent as evidence that he will never be enough for his lover. Having found what he saw, he congratulates himself on his dizzying talent for seeing people for who they really are. Meanwhile, for B, the pause was an act of love, a hesitation while she decided how to answer an unfair question without hurting her partner's feelings. So again, he's framing the man as jealous and the woman as compassionate. Again, it's a little bit of a of a stereotype. The other thing about it, to one of the strengths of the book is that he he uses what are quite heavy theoretical principles and sometimes complicated sometimes not and he applies them to easily accessible situations that we can all more or less uh, identify with the stoics point out to us that we augment our bad impressions of appearances with great wit we interpret and embellish and make matters so much worse for ourselves 
The simple and beautiful alternative, as recommended by Marcus and Seneca, is to make sure we do our best to stick with our first impressions of things. Do not say more to yourself than the first impressions report. You have been told that someone speaks evil of you. This is what you have been told. You have not been told that you are injured. I see that the little child is ill. This is what I see, but that he is in danger I do not see. In this way, then, abide always by the first impressions and add nothing of your own from within, and that's the end of it. This is Derren again. It is hard to stick to first impressions, perhaps because we think it makes us seem obtuse. People who just take things at face value and don't think more deeply about them hardly sound like role models. But we are not doing this out of a lack of imagination, quite the opposite. In fact, we are choosing when appropriate, because we can clearly see the advantages to stick with our first impression and not embellish the story. When we do otherwise, we too easily work to consolidate and bolster our insecurities by confirming to ourselves our worst fears. Now, of course, he expands on this in the book. I'm just cherry-picking fairly short paragraphs. I wouldn't say that you should stick to your first impression in the sense of ignoring more information. I think what he's really saying here is, I mean, it doesn't have to be the first impression, in my opinion. It could be any impression, but don't embellish it with your own creativity. This has come up again many times about how creative we are in creating these narratives, you know, either making predictions about the future or interpreting past events. He used the word wit earlier. I guess wit in those sense probably meant something closer to creativity. Just one more paragraph on this. It's difficult not to do something, of course, once we have it in our mind. In the same way we like to repeatedly press the button to call the lift when we're in a hurry, as if doing so will summon it any more quickly, we find it hard to sit back quietly if something is playing on our minds. So instead we can accept it isn't within our control and decide it's fine. And Darren gives an example of delaying responding to a friend's text when uh, you know it wasn't convenient to do that. And he talks about social media in this book, and we all know it's a right minefield, isn't it? You send someone a WhatsApp that you think is important. And with WhatsApp, it's worse because you can see when the ticks go blue that they've seen it. And then suddenly your mind starts going, oh, God, they haven't replied yet. With no knowledge of their circumstances at the moment. Maybe they just clicked on it and they read it, but they're not in a position to reply. So Darren says, once we've made that decision, our insecurity dissolves. And in the case of the text, they may come back to us to apologise for leaving it so long to reply. Meanwhile, if we had badgered them with further messages, we can almost guarantee that it would have infuriated them. And I've done this so many times before. I'm, I'm getting better. I'm learning. In the past, when someone didn't reply to me, I just could not control that urge to just send them a little reminder. And sometimes it is useful. Sometimes they might have forgotten. But it's just impossible for you to know. So the thing is to just turn off your brain and turn off this thing we have, as I said, of creating stories and presuming, making assumptions. You, know, you just got to turn it off and just let things slide. Darren also has a line that he used in a TED talk he did. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. We can benefit from remembering the words of the novelist David Foster Wallace. You will become way less concerned with what other people think of you when you realise how seldom they do. Next section is called, Do I Have a Problem Right Now? So much of our unhappiness comes from ruminating over past events or worrying about possible future ones. Guilt, in particular, is very pervasive. Normally, I find, if I'm annoyed at something for a long time, or if something someone says is eating me up, it's because, if I'm honest with myself, I know I've done something wrong. 
That feeling of being caught out creates in us all sorts of misplaced, angry and defensive reactions. Guilt is attached to the past in the same way that fear is attached to the future. If we have let ourselves down, it is difficult but highly therapeutic to admit as much to ourselves and realise we could have done better. We make a mental note for next time, apologise if need be to the people concerned and move on. We are fallible human beings and will make mistakes for the rest of our lives. So again, don't be too hard on yourself, as well as not being hard on other people. Seneca writes, Fear keeps pace with hope, nor does their moving together surprise me. Both belong to a mind in suspense, to a mind in a state of anxiety through looking into the future. Both are mainly due to projecting our thoughts far ahead of us instead of adapting ourselves to the present. Thus foresight, perhaps the greatest blessing given to humanity, is transformed into a curse. Wild animals run from the dangers they actually see, and once they have escaped them, worry no more. We, however, are tormented alike by what is past and what is to come. A number of our blessings do us harm, for memory brings back the agony of fear, while foresight brings it on prematurely. No one confines his unhappiness to the present. When we find ourselves worrying or anxious, we might ask ourselves, do I have a problem right now? If not, and where possible, we could decide to worry about it if and when it happens, or learn something useful from it and consign it to the past. So there is a well-known proverb, isn't there? We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. A couple of other things to say. Later on, uh, it'll probably be in part four, I think, he talks about meditation and mindfulness and this thing about the present moment, and it's just everywhere, you know. People are really cottoning on to the idea that everything really is the present moment. The past is there to learn from, and you should make a plan for the future. I don't think living permanently in the moment. I've seen people do that. There were musician friends I had in Madrid who were like that, and their life was pretty chaotic from having no plans at all, it seemed. The other thing about it is that Luke Thompson and I, on the compilation I did on the last episode, we talked about cats and uh, talked about how you can learn from cats and animals in general. He's talking there about wild animals and Cats, as we discussed, although they're domesticated, in there there's still a wild animal, as there is with humans, of course. But they live in the moment, you know, they're instinctive. And As we said, okay, a cat doesn't have the same responsibilities as a human, but I'm all in favour of taking little bits from everywhere. I'll just tell you once again something I've surely talked about in one of my podcasts. I watched a documentary about Jimi Hendrix years ago, and I think it was Jimi Hendrix's manager, Chas Chardler, said that they used to go and watch local bands in pubs all around London, which is something I did years later when I lived in London. And however bad the band was, Jimmy would always take one little thing from the night. He'd say, oh, it was the way the guy held his guitar pick or the way he bent the strings. And I've never forgotten that. Almost everything you experience in your life, good and bad, you can take something from it. And it's this constant improvement. You know, we're all works in progress, as many people have said. And that's another idea that people are realizing is true and it's going into the mainstream of culture which i'm very happy about this section is called rational meditation but it's meditation i think in the sense of um, deep and considered thought as in in the title of marcus aurelius's book this is a marcus aurelius quote from the book say to yourself in the early morning i shall meet today inquisitive ungrateful violent treacherous envious uncharitable men All these things have come upon them through ignorance of real good and ill. But I, because I have seen that the nature of good is the right and of ill the wrong, and that the nature of man himself who does wrong is akin to my own, 
I cannot be harmed by any of them, for no man will involve me in wrong, nor can I be angry with my kinsman or hate him. For we have come into the world to work together, like feet, like hands, like eyelids, like the rows of upper and lower teeth. To work against one another, therefore, is to oppose nature, and to be vexed with another or to turn away from him is to tend to antagonism. Some lovely poetic writing there. And this is Darren. So prepare for the day ahead. The idea of spending the first five minutes of each morning considering our tasks for the day and anticipating possible areas where we could let ourselves down or run into trouble might seem alien to us or too much of an effort. But consider the common alternative. We are normally awoken abruptly by an alarm clock when we could do with an extra hour of sleep. And if we have allowed ourselves a brief time to lie in bed and adjust to the morning, we tend to resort to that most banal of pastimes, browsing our phones. We check social media or see what emails have come through. One connects us with the rabble. The other starts our day with problems to which we are obliged to find solutions. Perhaps we check the news and again without realising we emerge into our day smothered by demands from the outside world which root themselves unpleasantly in our groggy, too malleable consciousness. We have prepared our psychological state for the day by laying the groundwork for envy. In brackets, we see that a friend has bought a new gadget we want but can't afford and by letting our barely sentient minds absorb the concerns of work communicated overnight to our inbox. Those first few moments of the day when we are still suggestible enough to slip back into dreams unfinished, have been invaded by the outside world's blaring cries for our weary attention. And he carries on with that, and then he says, We could instead try the stoic practice of pre-meditation, as we lie in bed and half-doze, or even better, if we can allocate five undisturbed minutes to sit still as part of our morning regime, we might take the time to think ahead to the events we expect this day to bring. We know we are likely to meet certain types of people. As we consider them one by one, we note our emotional responses to their faces that flash up on our mental movie screen. And he gives a few examples of these people that we know we're going to come across. Upcoming events too might be a source of concern. That class or exam or presentation that always makes us panic. The meeting we always leave wishing we had handled it better. The series of tiny household chores we tend to forget and which then cause annoyance in our partner. But now we can consider these people and events from a distance, and while our centre of gravity is within us. What is in our control, and what is not? Where today are we in danger of letting ourselves down, and acting in a way that we would later regret? What are the alternatives, which we can mentally rehearse now, and more easily employ when the time is right? Are we setting ourselves up for a fall, demanding too much of others, working with unrealistic expectations? How might it be absolutely fine if things don't go as planned? And again, he expands on that. A couple of things to say, really. You could spend that five or ten minutes or find yourself five or ten minutes meditating. Now, of course, there are apps and there's all sorts. There's really no excuse if, if you are planning on starting to do that, to actually do it. And this is something I've talked about, this whole thing about waking up to the alarm and immediately leaping up and checking your phone. Immediately, what you're doing is putting pressure on yourself. And of course, if you're in a relationship and you're waking up with someone else with you, perhaps they're doing the same thing and the combined effect of those two things makes it even worse. So as he says, you know, just take a few moments. And he does mention that this word premeditation might make us think of the more familiar practice of Buddhist meditation, but you don't have to meditate in the formal sense. And as I mentioned, the, the meditation <laughs> contained in the title of the Marcus Aurelius book is a different definition of the word it's more to do with contemplative 
thought. So contemplation, even if you don't want to do a more formal practice, I think you can manage that. For those who experience nothing but an angry, thundering fit of peak in the anti-meridian hours until liberal quantities of quarantine and caffeine permit a begrudging acceptance of society and clear thinking sometime around noon, Seneca provides an alternative approach to morning premeditation. For such people, he suggests a nightly review, a retrospective alternative wherein we might drift more comfortably into sleep after considering our actions during the day just lived. Seneca describes the practice, attributing it to Sextius, a Pythagorean Pythagorean philosopher who he imagined taught it to his students. When the day was over and he had withdrawn to his room for his nightly rest, he questioned his soul. What evils have you cured yourself of today? What vices have you fought? In what sense are you better? Is there anything better than to examine a whole day's conduct? Certainly we can imagine that if we were to be bothered to practice both these morning previews and evening reviews, considering best approaches ahead of time and later holding ourselves to account, we would live and breathe these stoic principles more effectively than a person who merely brings them half-remembered to mind when it is too late to fully benefit from them. It sounds like a whole lot of work. It might, however, start with a 30-second reminder to be the best person we can be, to not attach our emotional well-being to things outside of us, to watch out for known trouble spots. Likewise, we can round up the day with as brief a look back at how we behaved. Whether we let ourselves down, if there's anything we should change tomorrow, it should be neither prescriptive nor arduous. I have to agree with that, and it's something I do. I keep a diary, as listeners to this podcast will surely know, and part of my review of the day and preview of the day sometimes I write in my diary what I think might happen today it's more common I suppose in a diary that you write down things that have happened and I do that in the evening and it's massively useful to do that it really really helps a lot so I mean you're talking about 10 minutes out of the day five in the morning five in the evening and he was saying there you know if you're a person that just cannot get up in the morning (laughs) without lots of coffee and so forth then uh, maybe the evening review is better but I would do both really it does help you get to sleep because I find when I put something down on paper at the end of the day especially if it is something that I misjudged or maybe I was angry with somebody and snapped at them I don't do that too often now but you know it can happen it clears the deck somehow when you've written it down and if you don't fancy writing it down do as he says you know just review it and it, it does have a way of clearing it now, referring back to something you were saying earlier, you know, sometimes we can't get things out of our mind. It's really difficult. You might have to accept that some negative thoughts might linger. You just do your best. Just make that effort. At least you can tell yourself that you have made that effort. Now, he brings up here NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, and I'm going to leave you, if you haven't heard of it, to look online. You can find definitions of it. It's something that can be used in a manipulative way. Salesmen use it, I think, to perhaps work the conversation round to the idea that the customer it's a free choice of the customer to buy this car that maybe they don't want i think a car is a bad example because my sister used to sell cars and she said people come into the showroom wanting to buy a car you don't have to persuade them to do it but if you take something like double glazing is a classic stereotypical example of something that people don't necessarily need and the salesman knocks on your door or phones you up an LP can be used with yourself. It, it's a way of really reframing. Reframing is another classic word that's used in life coaching and self development. Using language. 
if you take it literally to, to program neurologically, which is your brain. And Darren writes, a classic NLP technique for relieving the emotional tension created by the thought of flying would be to practice re-envisaging the mental flight footage to make it more resemble the train sequence. And he's referring back to maybe someone has a pleasant train journey, is not looking forward to flying. He's introducing the idea of taking a third-person view as if it was on CCTV, so looking at yourself from outside. Because a point he makes a couple of times in the book is that when you give advice to other people, often the advice you give them is far better than the advice, if you like, that you give yourself because you come with all this emotional baggage. And as we've said before, we're always so hard on ourselves. If you analyse the way you treat yourself and think about treating another person like that, you'd be absolutely horrified. So taking a third-person view often helps. NLP tends to borrow its techniques from pre-existing therapies. Indeed, its cognitive slant can be traced back to stoic thinking. Its use of distancing most likely owes a debt to developmental psychologists Bernard Kaplan and Heinz Werner. We might reap the benefits of both a first and third person perspective if we give the prospective morning meditation a try. To consider difficult upcoming events without feeling the anguish, try switching to that third person CCTV point of view. Then when you come to rehearse a new, more positive response, resume the first-person perspective and view everything as you would through your own eyes, making it all as vivid as you can. This will give you a sense memory of the new desired way of behaving that will be more helpful when you then encounter the situation in real life. And I remember reading about this in an NLP book. There's another thing where you can make the positive outcome you're looking look very clear, as if you're using high-definition TV, 4K, let's say, and then see the negative outcome in a more blurry, out-of-date version. He's saying here, see the positive one as you, as the first person, and the negative one as a third person, so you're distancing yourself from it. So it's a slightly different way of using the third person from what I just described, but you can also use the third person to your advantage, as I've said, by taking a more detached view of it. Next part is quite interesting, and this is all about Finding time. One of the more enduring and charming classics of self-help literature, Arnold Bennett's slim 1910 volume, How to Live on 24 Hours a Day, makes a plea for using time wisely. Quote, If one can't contrive to live on a certain income of money, one earns a little more, or steals it, or advertises for it. One braces the muscles and balances the budget. But if one cannot arrange that an income of 24 hours a day shall exactly cover all proper items of expenditure, one does muddle one's life entirely. The supply of time, though gloriously regular, is cruelly restricted. Bennett's message is to find time in the day that is normally wasted and allocate it to the pursuit of the self-improving. Words like waste, spend and allocate are examples of the economic language with which we describe time yet we apply very little of the care we take when spending money to our dispersal of time. Most people, and Bennett was petitioning the large number of white-collar workers amongst his readers who had accrued since the Industrial Revolution, are less than enamoured with their jobs, yet consider time spent at work as the day. The remaining hours of the day are seen as subservient, marginal. We get up with barely enough time to get ready and leave, and then after work we merely wind down, then think about going to bed for nearly an hour before retiring. These remaining hours constitute the majority of our existence, yet still we denigrate them before the minority proportion that in itself brings us little true enjoyment. 
And there's another quote from Bennett's book. When you arrange to go to the theatre, especially with a pretty woman, what happens? You rush to the suburbs, you spare no toil to make yourself glorious in fine raiment. You rush back to town on another train, you keep yourself on the stretch for four hours, if not five. You take her home, you take yourself home. Twee, but true. We have little trouble making time when the rewards are highly motivating. Bennett recommends an hour and a half to be stolen from each day and spent improving the mind. Novels are excluded from the provinces of the illuminating. Instead, we are pointed towards anything we might find educational. He understands that motivation is important, suggesting making small and manageable changes first. These will offer their own rewards and spur the seeker towards greater shifts. Any number of modern treatises on self-improvement make the same point. Small changes lead to bigger ones, one step at a time. Yes, there are lots of self-help, self-development books that were written a long time ago, and they have advantages and disadvantages. Sometimes the language can be a bit too quaint and a little bit out of date, both the language and the ideas, but then at the same time, they seem less messy in a way. Because with modern books, there's been a lot of counter-information and the waters have been muddied a lot more and there's a simplicity about older books definitely now the next chapter of the book is called anger and hurt and i mean it's a very very long chapter nearly 100 pages i think this is part of the book where i've managed to i think (laughs) boil it down to a few essentials so anger certainly seems to have an evolutionary basis it serves a social purpose Displays of anger encourage others to change their behaviour and thus work to stop people transgressing societal rules that keep us cohabiting comfortably. If we neither felt nor exhibited annoyance, we would become slavish, in Aristotle's words, and an easy target for exploitation. Our concerns here as ever are not theoretical but practical. What matters is how we might be happier, and part of that is addressing the role of anger in our lives. So let's look at whether anger can be a positive force with a view to deciding what stance we would be best advised to take in times of frustration or annoyance and thus work to make our lives as free from disturbance as possible. One key matter is precisely what we mean by anger. Aristotle defined it as, quote, a longing accompanied by pain for a real and apparent revenge for a real or apparent slight affecting a man himself or one of his friends when such a slight is undeserved. Perhaps we've never considered these two interesting issues that Aristotle raises. One is that anger is driven by a desire for revenge, to harm another person. As the American philosopher Martha Nussbaum has discussed, that harm may be indirect. For example, an ex-spouse has a miserable time with their new partner, or mitigated by the nature of the relationship. A mother may be furious at her child, but the desire to harm is suppressed into punishment, scolding, or teaching the child a lesson. The desire for retribution is, however, always present. Without it, we are not really experiencing anger. There's also that second element, that a slight has occurred. While this is sometimes a less valuable criterion, it's certainly a very common cause of anger. If we consider those times when we have become annoyed at the words or actions of another, it is usually because we perceive ourselves to have been slighted, ignored, disregarded, or otherwise unfairly treated or perceived. Our private judgments are hard at work here. And I want to say a couple of things about anger. I used to have a huge problem with it, and I'm sure there's people in my past who can attest to that. It's a release, obviously, and uh, really any release of pent-up emotions is good. Sex, orgasms are a very, very pleasurable release of pressure. 
And the other thing is that for me, anger always came with injustice. So if I didn't let the injustice out or my feelings of injustice out, they would just linger and it would feel like it was unresolved. If you think of music, a friend of mine wrote a song a long time ago. In music, you have a, a final chord, like, so da, 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 and it resolves and it makes everyone feel comfortable in a weird way that the song has ended. It's that story has, has finished. But a friend of mine wrote this song years ago that didn't resolve. He just left it hanging just before that final chord. And I got used to it in the end, and I understood why he'd done it, if there was a conscious reason why he'd done it. I think I did it once in one of my songs, and it was almost slightly to tantalise people, but also to say that perhaps in life we don't get resolutions and things. But I think anger, yeah, it's a release, and it, yeah, I'd, I'd say it goes with injustice, like I said. I'm sure it goes with other things. You know, anger is definitely related to fear as well. He says here, when we consider the anger we might wish to retain towards matters of grave social injustice, is it really our desire to harm or retaliate that will secure important changes? Or does a positive result depend not on the anger itself, but how it is channeled? And of course, we could go on a big tangent about channeled anger. That, that is the best type of anger is when it's channeled towards something positive. He talks here about Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Martin Luther King's 1963 I Have a Dream speech is a masterclass in transforming the anger of black Americans into a future-oriented, constructive drive. He begins by describing the outrage that is felt by the black community as a debt owed rather than a matter of criminal injustice. Now he's quoting King, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check that has come back marked insufficient funds. The speech moves on to famously motivate its audience to seek to realise a vision of equality, not to unleash wrath upon its oppressors. The incitement of aggression is masterfully avoided. Perhaps then to feel anger is unavoidable, but not in itself helpful. The key is turning it into something constructive. We are angry because we would like to change something in the world, or maybe in ourselves, something that seems to be unjust. A feeling of rage does very little to rectify the perceived injustice. An artist sees the world and notices a difference between how she feels it should be and how it actually is. The work of art created is a way of bridging the gap, a physical manifestation of that discrepancy. The emotions experienced, which might of course be very pleasant and far from anger, are nonetheless channeled into something constructive, and the observer of the final piece might be challenged to pay attention to the issues in question and align themselves with the artist's motivations. King is dealing with raw, more volatile and highly charged emotions, but he and other motivators of non-violent protest are engaging in an essentially creative, visionary process. The stoic position, at least as detailed in Seneca's three-part work on anger, is that this destructive passion is alien to the essentially sociable nature of human beings. So quoting from Seneca's book, What is gentler than the human being when he is in a right state of mind? But what is more cruel than anger? What is more loving to others than the human being? What is more hostile than anger? The human being is born for mutual aid, anger for destruction. So he's saying that people are in the main good. From my research, it seems that there is a minority of people that maybe have sociopathic or psychopathic traits. Another thing we've explored previously on the podcast and that most people don't have that, and that they are essentially good. So anger goes against what seems natural. 
Now, I found a way of breaking this chapter up into the causes of anger, reasons to avoid it, and ways to combat and remove it. And I think there's some good stuff in here. So, causes of anger. I'm going to summarize these. Firstly, we are likely to feel angry when certain social rules are broken. You might have formulated a rule that is wrong for a person when sitting across a table from you to browse his phone. I said I wasn't going to do this, but his or her phone. Watching him do so might be infuriating. It might annoy us very much when our partners embarrass us in front of friends by airing private grievances they hold towards us, passive-aggressively disguising them as light-hearted jokes. And Darren talks about this is very much a trigger for him and he goes through his whole thought process and and the impulse to sulk, whether to say something. And often you find in couples, I think we've all had this, where the other person annoys you and if it's in front of other people, you... Let's be honest, you plan in your mind to bring it up later and you're waiting for the right moment and do you do it in front of the other people or do you just hold it for the rest of the evening and it it will come out later? There is a second category of trigger at play here, the perception of a personal slight. Aristotle, we remember, saw this as an important criterion of the feelings of anger along with a desire to inflict harm on the offender. By my partner's indiscreet remark, I've been made to feel embarrassed. This personal slighting is a common trigger for an angry response. I do, moreover, desire to inflict punishment on my partner for the affront. My wrath shall be mighty. I will become quiet and deny him the non-verbal language of affection. No eye contact. That will tell him. A third source of annoyance stems from irritants. There is a hint of this in the above example. Part of my annoyance comes from the feeling that my partner always makes those sorts of remarks. So he's talking about some remark he's made in public that's embarrassed Darren. I'm irritated by the fact that it seems to be a recurring pattern, like phone browsing over dinner. Examples of irritants in their purest forms might be a screaming child or a barking dog. Repeated disturbances that we try to ignore but cannot. My parrot, Rasputin, will occasionally enter a state of sudden distress and scream repeatedly at the top of his voice. He's somewhat highly strung, so this shrieking is normally caused by the sight of a possible predator through the window, such as a dog or a bicycle, or a tree or a plant or a cloud. Other times I imagine the chilling caterwaul is an urgent response to an existential concern that his life in a taxidermy-stuffed townhouse in South London is not proceeding along a route as rewarding as it might amongst the lush veridescence of the Amazon rainforest. Veridescence. Get the dictionary out there, folks. Regardless of our temperament, it clearly serves us to be less bothered by irritants, displays of disrespect and transgressions of perceived rules. Being disturbed less makes us happier. But there are other reasons why we might wish to avoid anger, and it will serve us well to know them if we are to feel motivated enough to try to reduce the frequency and intensity with which it grips us. Our aims are to increase happiness. Why should we seek to avoid anger on these grounds? Now, again, I'm going to mostly just list these and then just read a little bit from the book for each one. Number one, not making the point. Anger gets in the way of us making our point. We may feel desperately entitled to it due to feelings of panic or the outrage we feel in response to the story we have concocted about other people's motives and so on. And there's the narratives again. But if given free reign, it will defeat our objective to express ourselves convincingly. And I'm just going to say about that that Sometimes when you get angry, what happens is, as it rises, the words actually be, become difficult to understand for the other person. And often you will suddenly, 
or perhaps gradually, you'll become more and more irrational and then you might start talking about things which have nothing to do with the thing that you're angry about at the moment and then it just becomes can become almost vaguely hysterical and that the practical point of anger gets lost perhaps it wasn't there in the in the first place i've experienced people who've got extreme rage and really they're not trying to resolve any point they're literally just getting it off their chest you know they're literally just doing it for themselves so that's one the second one is our inevitable regret anger creates unhappiness for all involved and in particular for the person who is angry and as easy as it is to label a regularly angry person a monster his frustration that he must be seen in that way can only intensify the cycle of antisocial behaviour. Seneca describes the person in the grip of anger as, quote, the executioner of those persons he holds most dear and destroyer of the things whose loss will soon make him weep. Is this a passion, he asks, that anyone can assign as a helper and companion to virtue, as Aristotle believed, when it makes havoc of the resolutions essential to virtue achieving anything? So yes, there will be a regret and... Perhaps, again, we can fast-forward in our minds to the regret before we get angry. That's something that we're all capable of doing. So when you're about to get angry, you do know it. You know, for some people, I think the more extreme the problem we have with anger, the shorter the time is, that thought, when you know you're about to get angry and you decide to do it, because you do decide in the end, unless you've got this absolutely totally extreme red mist that you've got zero control over and that probably is the case with some people but everything the most extreme thing you can think of is the case with somebody but for the vast vast majority you are choosing you've got that little bit of time you've got that window of a couple of seconds before you unleash so think about the regret you'll feel you know try and think forward to that and perhaps you might stop the anger and you might find something else you know deep breathing punching a pillow whatever it is The solutions that we have here, the the ways to combat anger, they work with the reasons to avoid it, obviously. Okay, number three is no license. This is a quote from Michel de Montaigne. Montaigne reminds us of the important link between anger and vengeance. No passion disturbs the soundness of our judgment as anger does. No one would hesitate to punish with death a judge who was led to condemn his man as a criminal out of anger then why is it any more permissible for fathers and schoolmasters to punish and flog children in anger? That is no longer correction, it is vengeance. For a child, punishment is medicine. Would we tolerate a doctor who is animated by wrath against his patient? I'd never thought about that. If you were in a courtroom and the judge got really angry, what would you think? I think most people would think, well, he's totally out of control, I don't trust him. So it's saying, you know, you've got no license i take that as no right in a sense really and he he makes a point about parents hitting their children and schoolmasters hitting children that they don't have the right to do that now here's an interesting thing and i remember this comedian louis ck who i believe is if not back in favor has recovered from his cancellation a few years ago and i did used to like his show louis and i like some of his stand-up Louis C.K. expresses his surprise at the extent of his own fury that could emerge behind the wheel of a car. Quote, I waste a lot of time being angry with people I don't know. You know, it's amazing how nasty we can get as people, depending on the situation. Like, most people are okay, as long as they're okay. But if you put people in certain types of context, they just change. Like, when I'm in my car, I have a different set of values. I'm the worst person I can be when I'm behind the wheel. 
which is when I'm at my most dangerous. When you're driving, that's when you need to be the most compassionate and responsible of any time of your life, because you're fucking driving a weapon against weapons. And yet it's the worst people get. And I'm the worst. One time I was driving and there was this guy ahead of me and he sort of, I don't know, kind of drifted into my lane for a second. And this came out of my mouth. I said, you worthless piece of shit. What an indictment. What kind of way is that to feel about another human being? That's somebody's son. And the things that upset people. I was once driving and some guy in a pickup truck did, I don't know, I don't even remember. And I yelled out my window. I said, hey, fuck you. Where, outside of a car, is that even nearly okay? If you're in an elevator and you're right next to a person's body and he kind of leaned into you a little bit, would you even turn right to their face and go, hey, fuck you, you worthless piece of shit? No, literally zero people would ever do that. But put a couple of pieces of glass and some road between you and there's nothing you would not say to them. I hope you die. I said that to a person. Why? Because you made me go like this and he mimes, jiggling the steering wheel, for half a second of my life. You tested my reflexes, and it worked out fine. So now I hope your kids grow up motherless. I mean, what am I capable of? I like to think that I'm a nice person, but I don't know, man. Yeah, very interesting. I did read something about road rage, and in the book it it says that it was popularised by the American news network KTLA in 1987-88, following a spate of shootings on the Los Angeles freeways. It's something about your sense of personal space changes, something like that, or it's this weird sense of possession you have over your car, but you also feel like you possess the space occupied by you and your car. But uh, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? You know, the the depths of anger you do get when people are in their cars. So that that was a very interesting uh, passage there. Let's fast forward to ways of removing anger. There is mention here of CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, another thing I've mentioned many times and something I use in my life coaching. I'm not a qualified uh, therapist, but I still use things that I've learned in the therapeutic field, and Cognitive Behavioural Therapy is very, very useful. One of the things about it is really about, like we said earlier, when you're about to get angry, just analysing that moment. A lot of it comes down to that. CBT certainly offers us a clear model of how anger arises. It is not only enormously helpful for untangling this and other oppressive, overpowering emotions, but also follows logically from our understanding of the Stoic approach. 2,000 years after its conception, Stoicism has been taken up again as a form of therapy. The parallels between CBT and Stoicism remain remarkably striking. The only major difference, worth bearing in mind, is that CBT is about fixing certain troubles, whereas the key vision of Stoicism is the enhancement of an ordinary life to connect more powerfully to one's fellow human beings and to move more in accord with the universe. There is a love drive at the heart of the ancient school which is not present in the problem-specific raison d'etre of CBT. Yeah, so CBT really looks at how your thoughts and emotions drive your actions, but it concentrates on these trigger points, as I've said, and One of the modern phrases that I like is the idea of triggering, and it's always been a word in the dictionary, but it's come into such sharp focus because of the internet and social media. This idea that suddenly you get this trigger and anger or whatever it is appears. And it's something, as I said before, you can combat. Here is our core process. Trigger, judgment, inhibitions, behaviour. 
There are other factors too which bear upon the entire process. Our core beliefs about the world and what happens in it will play a huge part. If we believe that people are essentially selfish and out for themselves, then our judgments that follow a trigger event will be very different from those of someone who believes people to be essentially decent and good-natured. Likewise, if we believe it is appropriate to hit a spouse if he or she deserves it, our inhibitions will affect us quite differently in a heated domestic argument from another person who follows a life rule that you never do such a thing. So our relevant beliefs might be about the world and other people, or they may relate to what we deem appropriate in our own behaviour. They can have an enormous effect on our judgments or our inhibitions. As I was saying earlier, you know, if you grow up in a certain environment where things are normal or what you might call normalised, things that we would consider abhorrent, hitting your spouse or hitting your children, then people are going to consider that normal. You you can't get away from that fact. And that's why judgment, as Marlon Brando said in, in Apocalypse Now, it's judgment that defeats us. Likewise, our mood at the time of these events will play a huge part in what happens along that line leading to the final behaviour. If I am hungry, I become irritable. I become snappy and joyless before I even realise that low blood sugar is the cause. A world that half an hour ago was populated by smiling, sexy and fascinating individuals is now full of people getting in my way. The joy I'd previously found in my partner's silly and comical mood is now replaced with an impatience directed at his childish refusal to take urgent matters seriously. And he talks about insufficient sleep as doing that in the mornings and I personally, I mean, I've never been diagnosed as bipolar and I don't think I'm at a level that's diagnosable. But uh, I, I have always had these shifting moods and emotions and things like food and sleep definitely contribute to them or lack of food and sleep. I think you're lucky if you have very balanced emotions and you don't get these shifts too much. It's all a spectrum, of course, you know, it's, everything is relative. Although different approaches to removing anger will be suitable for different people depending on the way their anger forms and therefore where in their cognitive behavioural chain the solution is to be found, the ancients offer plenty of advice that we might wish to take on board. There is a consensus, for example, that when anger flares up, the best time to intervene with the lessons of philosophy is immediately. There's a quote from Plutarch here. Anyone who doesn't fuel a fire puts it out. And anyone who doesn't feed anger in the early stages and doesn't get into a huff is being prudent and is eliminating anger. Seneca uses a military metaphor. We're talking about warfare and must make sure our frontier guards are alert. In true stoic form, we must remain vigilant. The best course is to reject at once the first incitement to anger, to resist even its small beginnings and to take pains to avoid falling into anger. For if it begins to lead us astray, the return to the safe path is difficult, since if once we admit the emotion and by our own free will will grant it any authority, reason becomes of no avail. After that it will do not whatever you let it, but whatever it chooses. The enemy, I repeat, must be stopped at the very frontier. For if he has passed it and advanced within the city gates, he will not respect any bounds set by his captives. So there we are. That's what I was talking about earlier with you have a couple of seconds to make that choice. And it is a choice. So seven ways to combat anger. Again, I'm just going to list them and summarize a little bit each one. Number one is wait. And perhaps we don't really need to say anything more about that. Today we are sometimes advised to hold our tongue and count to ten when we feel angry. This modern stratagem is in origin a stoic precaution, a not terrible but rather weak solution that may not be adequate in some situations. 
but the instigation of delay was a highly recommended piece of ancient advice. Seneca, in his On Anger, clarifies that we delay not to simply switch off from the issue at hand, but so that we make better judgments as to how to act. Quote, the best corrective of anger lies in delay. Beg this concession from anger at the first, not in order that it may pardon, but in order that it may judge. Its first assaults are heavy. It will leave off if it waits. Okay, I think that's pretty clear. Now I've got an interesting one for number two, resist curiosity. So I've never thought of uh, anger as linked to curiosity. We've got our friend uh, Zeneca once again. Do you want to avoid losing your temper? Resist the impulse to be curious. The man who tries to find out what has been said about him, who seeks to unearth spiteful gossip, even when engaged in privately, is destroying his own peace of mind. Plutarch offers, I also try to cut back a bit on my nosiness. I mean knowing every single detail about everything, investigating and eliciting a slave's every occupation, a friend's every action, a son's every pastime, a wife's every whisper. This leads to many outbursts of anger, one after another every day. And these in turn add up to habitual discontent and surliness. So yes, the curiosity comes in finding out details that might then make you angry. And again, that is a very conscious decision. You're doing that, right? So try and resist that curiosity. Look at it this way. This is something that I tell my clients. You're never going to know everything in the entire universe. So it doesn't matter that you don't know things. Someone I was working with a couple of years ago, we were talking about family and family often comes up in life coaching you know it's hard to understand people and when we did the art of happiness i was saying that the dalai lama who spends most of his life meditating or in the lotus position or contemplating things he doesn't understand people so (laughs) don't expect to there's nothing wrong with not understanding things and there's also nothing wrong with not investigating everything now this is interesting we talk about social media But we still want to know, what are people saying? We want to know even more, what are people saying about us? He talks about social media and a TV show he did and the curiosity to find people's reactions to it. It is rare that we find ourselves in the position of overhearing people voicing their raw, unabashed opinions about us, unaware that we are listening. So he's talking about in the real world. The act of eavesdropping brings with it a set of appropriate physiological responses that remind us we are doing something we shouldn't. Our heart rate may increase, our breathing is likely to shift to our chest, our palms might sweat, our bodies are telling us to flee. We should be anywhere but here doing this. We know that our continuing curiosity is dangerous. Either we force ourselves to listen or we moved away from the door. We should feel the same response when we read comments about ourselves online. The problem is we don't. Irrespective of whether we are famous or otherwise, it is nowadays very easy to click or swipe and read what people are saying about us. When we secretly listen to a conversation from outside, our guilty feelings let us know that we are doing wrong. In contrast, the ready accessibility of mentions, posts and online comments leaves us feeling that our actions are blameless. We can only direct our anger at those we have posted. They are idiots, probably spotty 13-year-olds whose opinion we would not care for if we met them in person. They are haters, that's H-8-E-R-S, anonymous cowards, trolls and bullies. Some of the above may be the case. There's a strong argument for reconsidering the mask of anonymity in areas of the internet prone to bullying and the classic symptoms of de-individuation. But the immediate problem is not the nastiness of the comments, it's the fact that we are choosing to read them. We should approach them with the apprehension we would have 
were we to approach a door and hear our name mentioned on the other side, we should remember and enact that same paralyzing precaution. Very good stuff. So yes, social media has opened this door to a a whole other set of rules of communication. So you can be anonymous, which justifies some of the stuff you would say. At least when you're in a car with what Louis C.K. was talking about in Road Range, you are yourself out in the real world. This is something really bad. You could say these horrible things to someone with a total cloak of anonymity. And of course, not only that, but a lot of the comments, you can't delete them either. Some you can, but uh, in a sense, they're there forever. Especially if you choose to leave them there, of course. Something we touched on earlier was about mind reading and this thing about... That was actually the word I was looking for earlier when I was saying that we make assumptions or presumptions about what people think and what they do. What we're doing is trying to read their mind without knowing anything for sure. If we momentarily package and stow my multi-award winning, consistently envelope-pushing and hilariously lucrative performances neatly to one side, we must accept the conspicuous truth. We are terrible at reading each other's thoughts, yet we consistently behave as if we've been endowed with this entirely handsome ability. That person blanked us at the party because he was thinking, I'll ignore that idiot. Our child repeatedly ignores our pleas to tidy her room because her thoughts are running as follows. Ha! I'll ignore mum's instructions and it will really wind her up. I don't have to do anything she says. Those who annoy us are doing it deliberately. Our boss is unsupported because he can't be bothered. We just know what is going on in their heads. If selective perception gives us the pre-chosen data from which to form our stories, mind reading is a common means of building the narrative itself. In order to make this mistake, we must replay an event the blanking at the party, or run through an imagined scenario, our child alone in our room, and dub over a commentary. It may happen briefly, but we must construct something along these lines in order to create an angry feeling. It's good in a way that over this very, very long series that I'm doing here about this book and over Darren's very long book, it comes back to key points. And this construction of narratives is absolutely one of those. You know, it's absurd if you think about it, how, quote, creative we're being in... uh, constructing the these ideas of these slights against us it's quite remarkable really if we could channel that into uh, i don't know reading writing a book or writing a story or something i think it'd be much better if you see it as a story then uh like i say write a story instead there's a note here about uh, catastrophizing that's another thing that comes up in life coaching something bad happens and you turn something slightly bad into a catastrophe yet another proverb that's in the english language which proves that Lots of these pearls of wisdom have existed for, I don't know, hundreds of years, maybe thousands. Don't make mountains out of molehills. Those beset by feelings of anxiety are, of course, most prone to catastrophizing. Our loved one is to spend time with an attractive new client at work. Clearly, they will fall in love. We have a sore leg. We must have a ripped tendon or worse. We've picked at a spot. We will always be scarred and more prone to skin cancer. The language we use when we catastrophize becomes unnecessarily emotional and contrast becomes starker. Two experiences of being ignored at parties translates into I'm always blanked by people. I'll never find a partner because I'm just worthless. We hear from friend A that friend B told friend C that we are tiresome, too critical of others, a bad drunk and this translates into B hates me. Without ever finding out what was really said, we strike friend B from our party invitation list and foster feelings of anger and betrayal under a guise of indifference. The friendship then suffers because of us, not our friend. And I think the point has been made. I mean, Woody Allen, 
has made a career arguably out of playing this character that does seem to be pretty close to what he's like in real life. If you take the documentary Wild Man Blues, this guy who's always catastrophizing and always thinks he has a tumor or cancer. I'm just going to summarize the next one. It's called Use Imaginary Friends. Darren gives an example of um, when he was on a train and there was a woman coughing and it was really irritating him. He imagined what it would be like if another friend was with him who commented on the woman coughing. And this is what I was saying earlier about when someone else is um, in pain, I'm in pain in the sense of suffering in some way, and obviously the woman coughing might have been, but I'm talking about the friend. You would probably say to that friend, well, you know, don't let it bother you. It's that whole thing about if we, if we could only take our own advice, then we'd have far less problems. So Darren imagines a scenario where he is with a friend who's irritated by the coughing what would you say to that friend then just say it to yourself pretty simple simple but not easy that's an important distinction solving the world's problems is quite simple but it's not easy the trick of bringing other people to mind is of enormous use in dispelling anger it's tempting to hold on to our annoyance to feel entitled to it and justified in every aspect of its expression yet it does us no favors We might prefer to untangle our anger from the matter at hand to gain a clearer perspective on it. We might use a friend, an admired luminary, even a fictitious character as a role model who can spring to mind when we find ourselves incensed. How might they deal with this situation? How would they coolly laugh it off or rise above it? This might give us some distance from our own story and offer a more helpful, convincing perspective. Or if a friend were suffering with this particular problem, how would we advise them? those calming words of wisdom we would offer, what would they be? So that's going back to the train example. Now, um, I've always been a person who loves buying secondhand books and visiting flea markets and stuff. And I remember I saw a book called What Would Jesus Do? And at the time, you know, I was a bit immature. I probably just laughed about it. I think I was with someone and we both laughed about it. And I read a little bit of it and didn't take it very seriously. But it really doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus you could still read some of his teachings. And even if you think it's a fictitious person, it doesn't really matter because you can create in your own mind a wise person. They don't have to exist. But it's the teachings that's important. So you could look at what Jesus said, or is supposed to have said, and you could learn a lot from it. But yeah, think of a role model. Think of, um, you know, I'm I'm not really in favour of worshipping celebrities. We'll get to that. I think it's going to be at the beginning of part four about fame and how utterly ridiculous all that is and i covered this in the tennis episode i did but you could anything can be used if it's for a good end and you can use a celebrity that you do look up to and think what would they do in my younger days everything i did was based on what john lennon would do but it wasn't the real john lennon or it wasn't completely the real john lennon it was to some extent the real john lennon plus all the propaganda and all the the positive things that have been ascribed to him since his death but yes, you can use anything, as I said, to, if it's useful for improving yourself and improving your relationship to the world. Now, this one's quite interesting and uh, might seem uh, a little bit of a strange one, but number four is lower your self-belief. You ask what is the greatest failing in you. This is Seneca again. You keep accounts badly. You rate high what you've paid out, but low what you have been paid. And then Darren writes, perhaps the greatest cause of anger, not to mention frustration, is the fact that we have an inflated sense of our own entitlement. We believe we are entitled to happiness. We see it as a birthright that we can righteously claim, some thing out there that we can and should possess through sheer willpower. 
the overwhelming majority of self-help books apotheosizing that all-important first syllable teach us to increase our self-esteem, our self-respect, our self-confidence. We set our sights too low, we are told. We absorb other people's negative appraisals of ourselves. We need to stand up, say no, and decide we deserve more. This message is now so ubiquitous that we never question it. For some, of course, who truly suffer from debilitating self-esteem, it can be an important intimation of hope and not to be belittled. But even in such cases, self-aggrandizement does not solve the problem. Our centre of gravity must be brought inside where it belongs. Locating it in others is where we get into trouble, regardless of whether it results in shyness or a brash need to impress. And then he gives um, an example of meeting, uh, I think it was the mogul of a whiskey conglomerate. And he was talking about how everything about this guy was immaculate, but it was very effortless. And it could be that this person had, I don't know, rehearsed it. It could be a, a very good act that you do so often that it becomes natural. But Darren seemed to see that that wasn't the case, that this person oozed it without needing to try too hard. All the difference in the world exists between that man and the other who plays high status for no reason other than inside he feels like a scrabbling, panicked child. I spend a lot of time amongst performers and I'm always struck by how much or little those who dazzle for a living need to impress in real life. Circus performers and acrobats, interestingly, seem to me to be most strikingly delightful and as a rule free from stifling egos. There is a true international camaraderie which is patently lacking in, say, the magic scene. Perhaps that's because acrobats and jugglers and the like don't cheat, at least compared to conjurers. Amongst the latter group, undoubtedly fanned by the fear of being a fraud, egos are commonly as inflated as social skills are uncultivated. As a group, we magicians are prone to holding court, talking shop, telling anecdotes and keeping the focus on ourselves and our wearying, withering put-downs. Lacking the aerialist's confidence in his significant quantifiable skills, magicians commonly lack the hallmark of the truly successful, quiet charm. No, I love that, quiet charm. I would say as well, calm charisma. Charisma can be worked on, of course, and there are many, many gurus who help, let's say, young guys, for example, to work on their charisma till it becomes natural. You're never going to quite know how much someone's worked on something unless they tell you, so you have to take it at face value to some extent. Interesting that he mentions ego, because ego is so important. The size of your ego, its relative fragility and the way you control it is, I would say, if anything, the most important thing to having a happy life. Recently I watched on Netflix the new Wham! documentary. And I know that Wham! Uh, probably were not even a fashionable band when they were arguably the biggest pop band in the world for a while in the 80s. But I find the story of Wham! very interesting because it's about two guys who met and George Michael, because that wasn't his real name, He's of Greek origin, so he had a unfashionable Greek name that I imagine people made fun of at school. Andrew Ridgely was assigned to look after George Michael at school. Andrew Ridgely, in George's eyes, was one of these people who was just born self-assured and easygoing, and he was, he was a good-looking fella, Andrew. And George Michael became Andrew Ridgely, essentially. So the trade-off, really, with Wham! is that George did most of the songwriting, but actually the image came from Andrew. But uh, I just wanted to quote something that George Michael describes his ego as, quote, that bastard, insecure little thing that comes from fear. And yes, 
a lot of egotistical people, they are operating from a position of fear. And you have to remember that. Another thing, talking about effortlessness, let's call it. I went on holiday to Boston once with a couple of friends. And one of the friends had friends who lived in Boston and we stayed with them for a week. And we went to a few bars and we went to uh, quite a rough area of Boston. But it had quite a nice uh, bar. And, yeah, real nice kind of salt-of-the-earth people. And my friend introduced me to these couple of guys who were these local... I wouldn't call them gangsters, but they were, let's say, hard men. I'm not saying they did it for a living, but they were people that were quite feared in the community. And the thing about them is that we spent a whole evening with them and they didn't display any intimidation or ego, really, or any need to show to us what position they had in the community. But they just oozed... I suppose you'd call it potential menace. Also wanted a reference. I just uh, listened to the audio book of the novel of The Godfather. Some of you will know I'm a big Marlon Brando fan, did a two-part special on one of my other podcasts, Film Gold. And Marlon played him in the film quite similar to how he is in the book, in that Don Corleone barely ever raises his voice. And everything is done in a calm and measured and fairly reasonable way. And I know that sounds like a massive contradiction if you take into account some of the things that he does or some of the things that are done on his orders. But, you know, he does exist in that world. I think De Niro as well in Godfather Part 2 playing the young Vito captured that perfectly. It's that quiet, calm thing. And it's very, very attractive. And I'm not saying that Don Corleone was someone that I would want to have known if he was a real person. But I found that an attractive quality. Also, just wanted to reference briefly, I taught children for a year and I found uh, very quickly that I didn't have that skill. It was very, very tough. I'm much better at teaching uh, English to adults. But one thing, um, I think it was a bit of advice I got from an old hand of teaching children is if you get angry too often, if you think of it in a card game, a metaphor of showing your hand, they all run rings around you because children have a power, especially if there's 10, 20 children in a class, 30 even, against your one person you know they'll take you to pieces the thing you have to do is to do everything very calmly but make it clear that you do mean business and I found that if I just raised my voice every couple of months very occasionally it really had an effect and from my acting training I had learned how to shout how to go from the voice I'm using right now which is I'd say pretty calm and measured I won't demonstrate it now because I'll go into the red on the recording device I've got here. <laughs> but uh, I have quite a good shout. I can suddenly go from this voice to a, a sharp shouting voice. And the other thing about it is that you don't need many words as well. So a bit of advice maybe there to teachers. I don't really think shouting at children's that great or effective. But every now and again, just a couple of words, or if you just shout stop in a way that you really mean business and then go back to being calm. It's very, very effective. Anyway, let's go forward to number five. You have the same faults as those who annoy you. So we've got our friend uh, Seneca again. If we are to be fair judges of all that happens, there is no justice in blaming the individual for a failing shared by all men. All of us are inconsiderate and imprudent, all unreliable, dissatisfied, ambitious. Why disguise with euphemism this sore that infects us all? All of us are corrupt, therefore whatever fault he censures in another man, every man will find residing in his own heart. Marcus Aurelius notes a similar point to himself. When you run against someone's wrong behaviour, go on at once to reflect what similar wrong act of your own there is. Very simple, really. 
you might even say simplistic there. When Zeneca said everyone is corrupt, I think he's, he meant that, you know, we're not all honest all the time. And then Darren mentions that in Christianity you have the adage, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. I think that one is very simple, as I said. So let's move on to an interesting one here. Number six, understanding the offender's motivation. I think really this comes down to, again, you have to believe that most people are good and most of their negative actions are not born out of malice. I don't think there's too many occasions where we just set out just to hurt another person deliberately. I'm sure we've all done it, hopefully not in a serious way. Again, this choice of anger, let's say, or the choice of saying something that could be really belittling the other person or bullying them. Yeah, these are choices. Anyway, Marcus Aurelius again. When people injure you, ask yourself what good or harm they thought would come of it. If you understand that, you'll feel sympathy rather than outrage or anger. Your sense of good and evil may be the same as theirs or near it, in which case you'll have to excuse them, or your sense of good and evil may differ from theirs, in which case they're misguided and deserve your compassion. Is that so hard? Seneca again, some men, it is true, have not only just but honourable reasons for standing against us. One is protecting a father, another a brother, another his country, another a friend. However, we do not pardon these for doing the very thing which we would blame them for not doing. No one says to himself, I myself have done or could have done the thing that is making me angry now. We have um, an anecdote here from Darren. Again, I'll I'll summarise it. Basically, one friend of his wanted to meet Darren just alone, just two of them. Not in a romantic way, just because he just wanted to meet with him. And I have this sometimes as well. I like kind of one-on-one meetings because you can get into quite deep stuff. And sometimes you just don't want another person there. So basically there was a misunderstanding where I think he said, told the third friend, I'm a bit busy or I'm doing something else. And then Darren and the friend were spotted by a friend of the third friend. (laughs) Does that make any sense? He told a white lie to spare his friend's feelings. So instead of saying, I'd rather you weren't there, he just said he was busy or doing something else. Anyway, they got caught out and uh, the third friend got angry. There is at the heart of this anger a pang of existential melancholy. We play only peripheral parts in the lives of our friends. They are the chief protagonists of their own dramas. To them we are merely supporting cast. In the same way that the complexities of a minor character can never be fully explored, we too are reduced in the eyes of those who know us to a handful of clear-cut characteristics as predictable and easily categorised as our dress sense. Moreover, we only emerge in their minds in this diminished form on those brief occasions when they happen to think about us. For the vast majority of the time, our friends do not think of us at all. And when they do, our anger at the loving and considerate lie they tell us to spare our feelings is misplaced. Again, just a couple of things to reiterate. One, the quote that Darren, well, he was quoting from someone else about, we'd care less about what people thought if we realised how little they did. And then... um, Again, we're getting angry at a white lie that somebody has told. Imagine we're the person getting angry at that, but then we look at ourselves and we say, well, if I told that white lie, it'd be for a good reason. So we're ascribing negative reasons because it fits, I don't know, our need to be angry. I think we all have a need to let out negative feelings and such as anger because life is hard, but it's hard for everyone, you know? And like I say, most people, I think, have good intentions most of the time. The final way to combat anger, number seven, lower your expectations. 
And when I read that phrase and when I was preparing this yesterday, I was reminded of a great TED talk called The Paradox of Choice. And it's one I use in my English classes. I'll put it in the show notes. And it's about a guy, I guess he's a sort of middle-aged American guy with a great dry sense of humor and a dry delivery. He's talking about how having a million mobile phones to choose from or 50 salad dressings or 50 types of jeans is, is stressful. And actually, you might end up making no choices at all. Now, there's one bit that's great where he goes, he goes, oh, I wear jeans, but I don't care what anyone thinks about what they look like. I just want a real simple pair of jeans. And in the end, he says to someone in the jean shop, have you got the pair that used to be the only pair you could buy? <laughs> in other words, have you got any normal jeans amongst the boot cut and stonewashed and skinny and flared and whatever else there is? But in the end, he said, uh, the key to happiness is low expectations. Just give it away the ending to the TED Talk, but uh, please watch that. There's loads in it, and it's relatively short as well. So this is Darren. We laugh at the near-mythical riders of American divas that demand a dressing room decked out in white lilies or M&Ms of a single colour to be sourced and abundantly provided. Some may have a foundation in truth. Others are undoubtedly the fiction of PR machinery or the neurotic stipulations of fawning management teams. Yet there is a gradual but sure slope of madness that starts with an everyday fussiness with food and climbs to these pastiche hallmarks of celebrity status. Along its way, it passes the reception desks of progressively fine hotels, the corridors of workplaces where high flyers talk to staff and personal assistants and secretaries, and winds through the table of expensive restaurants where the rich complain to increasingly servile maitre d's about decreasingly worthwhile things. So that's a slightly flowery way of thinking that diva inclinations start small. You often find celebrities and they'll, especially if they come from a very humble beginning i mean when i thought of divas jennifer lopez is the one that's always seems to be mentioned and she's got a she had a song jenny from the block she's saying uh don't be fooled by the rocks that i've got i'm still jenny from the block that's about the only jennifer lopez lyric i know by the way somewhere in there is, is still that more humble person but i think if you become famous or especially super famous you gradually lose that more and more that grounded down-to-earth sense you can become a diva very easily We'll come on to fame in part four, but as you become famous, you get used to having more and more and your expectations don't really end. I've always thought there must be famous people out there who make a million pounds or dollars. Well, it used to be a million, perhaps now it's 10 million where you absolutely 100% set for life and you can get a nice house. There must be a few that say, I'm happy with this and they don't keep striving. But I think the expectations of what life may offer tend to go up and up and that, that's something we'll, we'll get into like i said that's one of the toxic aspects of fame outcomes lie beyond our control within the realm of externals or indifference so we do well to remind ourselves whenever we make plans that things may turn out contrary to the ideal as we get excited about a planned or expected future event this is a good thing to remind ourselves we are mitigating any future disappointment it might sound pessimistic to qualify everything with such a reserve clause and in a sense it is. It's a very valuable and life-enhancing form of pessimism. Of course, it's harder to get excited about a future event if we keep reminding ourselves it might not happen. We're so indoctrinated against the idea of pessimism that it might seem as if we are actively denying ourselves a source of happiness through this exceptio. But consider the alternative. When we become very excited about a future event, we forget the present and place ourselves in the future. We're at the mercy of something outside of our control, whether or not the event happens as we would wish. 
it may turn out to be better than expected or roughly the same or worse. The more excited we are, the more likely it is to fail to meet our expectations in the same way that something we dread is likely to be not half as bad as we feared. Please excuse the plug, folks, but Life and Life Only, Episode 2, Cynicism and Free Thought, talking about how there's nothing wrong with scepticism and cynicism and that, uh, as we've discussed before with self-help, this sledgehammer of positivity doesn't really help in a lot of cases. Now, um, somewhere in the book, Darren mentions tennis, and of course it's a nice callback to the episode I did about tennis. The key is to remember that game of tennis. You still try to the best of your abilities. You play as well as you can. That realm of your thoughts and actions is under your control and you're in charge. Whatever your role is, parent, sibling, citizen, worker, role model, president, you can do that thing in an exemplary fashion. Be the best you can be at what you are. Engage, inspire. Where there is injustice and where it is under your control to make a difference, use your abilities to create change but don't ultimately emotionally commit yourself to the outcome. That's out of your hands. You're not playing to necessarily win, you're just playing as well as you possibly can. And of course I talked about on that tennis episode that if you're playing in the Wimbledon final or any other big championship, it probably doesn't matter whether you win or not. But you'll often find that sportsmen get as much or more disappointed if they just don't perform to their ability. You know, you had this big opportunity and you just don't give your best for whatever reason whether it's nerves or just this mysterious thing where you wake up on the day feeling fine and you feel fine till you get out there and you just don't perform and it it can be maddening but I think if you just have in your mind what Durham was saying this sort of constructive pessimism you might call it then you are prepared for the outcome it's like if you have a completely sheltered child and you have a quote-unquote perfect childhood soon as stuff happens soon as life starts happening to you unless you're shielded from it your whole life, you're not going to be able to deal with it. Last part of uh, part three of this series is about empathy. Darren talks about his passion for what's known as street photography. And the idea of street photography is that you literally walk the streets and you take snapshots of everyday life happening in front of you. Some street photographers are very into and very skilled at the technical aspects of photography. Other people feel that just snapping a photo is more natural. When I was in India, I met this uh, fellow from South Africa called Gavin, and we travelled together, and we had a really good rapport. It was very effortless. And he was into street photography, and we were in India. We took pains not to treat local people as exhibits, just to be photographed. And we didn't necessarily photograph examples of grinding poverty. We did take photos of people in poor areas but trying to just capture moments and in a way trying to sum up what is ultimately a superficial view of India I was there a month I don't know how long he was there exactly but we found some very very evocative images that we managed to capture I'm just going to read a bit of uh, Darren talking about this people in relation to each other and their environments can unwittingly create moments of poetry When I carry out my novice attempts to capture these, I feel both detached from the world, as any observer might do, especially when looking at it through a viewfinder, yet feel very connected to people around me. I'm paying far more attention to them than normal. I'm far more interested in life. I'm attracted to people and the snapshots of life that show through their postures and faces. I'm drawn to the geometry of architecture and bodies. 
I become interested in the relationships between them and the possibilities of something lovely and serendipitous arising from that interplay, quite aside from whether or not I capture it with any success. My normal regrettable practice of minimal eye contact and uncharitable pigeonholing is suspended in favour of a real fascination with everything human. Regardless of how unsuccessfully my amateur photographs might live up to this promise, and there's Darren being a bit annoyingly British in his self-deprecation, I find the experience very affecting. It has become a shortcut for me to this experience of permeability or porousness. There is the detachment, the centre of gravity within oneself that we are aiming for, but also an empathy and sense of free flow. It's normal, when taking street photographs, to wander zen-like, getting lost, following whatever route one's instincts suggest, being open and available to whatever's happening around you. It's rooted in the moment, porous yet centred. I'm just going to end with a really lovely observation he makes. While writing an earlier part of this chapter, I was sitting in the lounge area of a hotel in Conwy, a small and achingly pretty Welsh town outside of Clandudno. The doors had been thrown open as the day was very hot. I'd come inside to write after desiccating outside in the sun for an hour. The patio was small and probably needed some planters to cut off the view of the adjoining car park but scattered around the few brown and yellow tables were families and small groups, and every 15 minutes a bell rang from a nearby church, identifying the quarter hour, which lent the scene an unexpected Tuscan air. I watched a slim woman in a white dress and a floral bandana pour tea for herself and her husband. Another couple adjusted the position of a chair for an elderly man I presumed to be the father of one of them. A chap in his early thirties took off his hat, sat back in his chair, and raised his face to the sun while his friend perused his phone. A poodle lay on its side in the sun, little curly legs outstretched. Two women chatted over white wine. The older one, whose face I could see, was about fifty and evidently very attentive to the successful arrangement of her bobbed blonde hair each morning. She must have enjoyed showing off her tanned arms with a sleeveless black dress. With the fine weather and occasional bell tolls augmenting my appreciation, I suddenly felt a strong sense of delight in these people. Each had decided to put on those clothes this morning, to sit facing that way in the sun or shade. Each expressed their affection for or ease with their companions in some different and touching way. Each was here, enjoying the same heat, sharing the same space. Each, like the waitress who brought plates of risotto and crusted cod to her customers, was doing their very best to balance their responsibilities and desires and navigate this life as well as possible. I think that's a really nice place to end part three. It's just delighting in normal life. And I've had this before as well. When I look at people, every now and again, the compassionate side of my personality will come out and uh, I will celebrate ordinary life and people and realise that most people are good. And I'm really glad that I'm ending with that part because I, I always do try and end my podcasts, even if they're podcasts about dark things, with something nice and positive. When Douglas Valentine was on Life and Life Only talking about Vietnam and some of the horrible aspects of war and foreign policy and things like that, I ended it by getting him to read one of his poems because he's also a poet. So let's celebrate ordinary life. That's something that came up in an episode of another of my podcasts, Glass Onion on John Lennon. We did 1967 and we were detailing when I had my mother on my podcast on Glass Onion, talking about how 1967 wasn't that different for ordinary people. We ended by saying, you know, just let's celebrate ordinary life. And uh, this one, final circling back to the 
episode about tennis we were saying about don't envy people yeah it'd be great to win Wimbledon or the US Open but there's all kinds of other bits to people's lives that we just don't know and uh, what we've seen in part three again is, is this thing about mind reading and uh, having all these leaps in narrative that really have almost no evidence with that being said I did the plugging of the life coaching at the beginning didn't I I will say once again please share these episodes and tell other people about the podcast because I think it's good work I'm pretty happy here I've just gone over two hours it'll be edited down a little bit so I don't know what will come out to but I mean I won't really edit any of the content just pauses and ers and ums that you're not hearing as you hear my smooth but hopefully not too slick edit of this so thank you very much for listening I'll be back with part four we're going to start by looking at fame and then we're going to go into lots of other good areas that are covered in Darren's book and we will end up talking about death and how the fear of death is holding us back a lot of the time and perhaps even holding the human race back but that will all become clearer when the time comes so for now all the best take care and see you soon goodbye goodbye